Thank you for listening to the sermons here at Ascension Lutheran Church. Our worship services happen on Sunday mornings. 8.30 is our traditional worship service, and 10.30 is our contemporary worship service. We'd love to see you on a Sunday morning. You can visit us also on our website at www.alcrpv.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're in the book of Revelation, and we are reminded that the book of Revelation um, opens with a promise. Those who hear these words, those who read these words, are blessed. And so by the very action of us hearing or reading these words, we are blessed, and we are able to just see something new and fresh about God. Revelation opened with the uh, letters to the seven churches, and the seven churches each having a different call to repent, each reminding us that we have this temptation inside of us to go our own way, to do our own thing, to follow our own path. And so God reminds us, repent, turn to me, do, do what you need to do so that you can come and rethink about where you're going and put yourself back on the path to righteousness. And then we had last week, I showed you my wonderful artistic ability, which I'm sure um, I didn't get anyone assigned copy, so it didn't, must not have been that good. Um, but the, I love the drawing of seeing the throne room because to me, it changes the way I pray. I get the opportunity to think about the throne room of God and sitting, um, and what, what is going on in there with the worship and the lamb and the rainbow and the promise. And so that led us to then remember John saw this scroll and he wanted to open the scroll. He wanted someone to be able to open the scroll. And there were seven seals on the scroll. And he cried out, who can open this scroll? And all of heaven was silent. And John began to weep bitterly because no one could open the scroll. And so he was weeping. And that's Good Friday. That's that moment where we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to save we thought we had this intimate relationship with God, but now he's dead on a cross. And then he hears or feels a right hand, and he says, Do not weep, for the lamb, the lion, the tribe of Judah has overcome. He can open the scroll. And then do you remember heaven? Remember what happened in heaven? Heaven burst out in worship. Heaven just couldn't stop but worshiping him because of what he is and what he did. And so we have all the angels singing. And remember, it wasn't just all the angels. All creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every living thing started worshiping him because that's how important Easter is. And that's what's happening on Easter Sunday. And that's what we sing. This is why we worship. And this is why we, we live in this world where we have the privilege of seeing a God who has overcome sin and death. And then he gets the scroll handed to him. And the scroll's handed, and he starts breaking the seals. And as he breaks the seals, and these seals focus and use very earthly illustrations. And the reason they use earthly illustrations is because they are pointing us to what happens as natural consequences of our sin, natural consequences of us living out this life where we struggle to live in submission to our Lord and Savior. And so we see these things and these seals are broken. And this enters us into that period, that period from the ascension to the judgment seat, which God calls these last days. When are the last days? 
Here. Today. We're in these last days. And you look around the world and you go, yeah, of course we are. It's been this way since the ascension all the way to the judgment seat. And so what God is showing us is the natural results of sin as he breaks these seals. And so then I saw the lamb. This is Revelation 6. Open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures call out as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow. A crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So this is one of the seals that is the most difficult to understand. The other three, which um, are the second seal, the third seal, and the fourth seal, all basically toss you a a, a softball of what they are. The second one, warfare, to take peace from the earth. Okay, warfare. The third one is economic imbalance, talking about the scales and um, the, the... cost of a pound of grain, the cost of a a pint of oil. And then the fourth one is called death. So you know what the fourth one is? Death, right? So those three are kind of like, yeah, okay, I'm going with you there. This first one, though, is the one that we have much debate over. And I'll bring you into that conversation. Some of the earliest church fathers say that this first writer here is Jesus, and is the gospel being proclaimed? And so they say that the first one is Jesus in the gospel. And, and there are some things that point us to that. Well, he's wearing white, right? The rider is wearing white. Jesus wears white, the righteousness. He has a crown on his head. Well, Jesus is king, so he has a crown. And he comes out to conquer. They would put a positive connotation on the conquer. They'd say, to conquer in the name of Jesus to go out and to spread his kingdom, you know, <coughs> excuse me, onward Christian soldiers, go out and spread the gospel. And so they say, this is Jesus. Now, I struggle with that. I struggle to say, okay, I, I think that this is Jesus. And, and let me tell you a couple um, of the, the issues when I look at this. The, the first one is, is that in this reading, it seems like these four horsemen are on the same level. The first one definitely comes out first and initiates the ride, if you will. So the first one begins, and then the other one go, okay, it's time to go, and they all start riding. But there is no greater horseman. Anytime Jesus is seen, he's always seen as above and beyond. He's always seen as Lord and Lord of King and Kings. This doesn't give us any indication of that. This doesn't point us to the fact that this rider is better than the other riders. The other thing is warfare, economic imbalance, and death. Would you put those in the positive or negative camp? Pretty easy, right? Like, yeah, those are those scary things we're talking about, about the book of Revelation. This is why I don't read this book, Pastor Scott. Right there, the four horsemen. How then, without any real distinction, are we going to say the first one is Jesus and the re- other three are very negative? There's no, nothing in the text that breaks apart this first rider and the first seal from the second to move us from some kind of very positive to a very negative. 
These four horsemen are very grouped together, and grouping Jesus with warfare, economic imbalance, and death seem a little sketchy to me. But let me tell you the biggest reason why I don't think that this is Jesus. Revelation 19 shows us a rider on a white horse who is definitely 100% Jesus. And if you have your Bible, open, if you would, to Revelation 19. If you don't, there's one right in front of you in the pew, and you can grab it and um, read along. Revelation 19, starting with verse 11. This is the rider on the white horse. And this is what he says. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and his head and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Jesus. Right? That's Jesus. That's the power that we're talking about. John gives us all of this authority when we see Jesus riding in. And then we have one sentence about this other white horse. Now, I'll give you this. He looks like Jesus. He's on a white horse and he's wearing a crown. So it's something that may look like Jesus and and get us tempted to think, oh, that's a place I should put my loyalty. That's a place I should put my trust. He's not this rider, is he? I don't think so. I think that this rider is the true one on the white horse. That first one is meant to get us to go, yeah, I'll believe you. I'll trust you. So then, if it's not... Now, now, just just this disclaimer. There's a book on my desk. There is a theologian um, in a commentary I have who thinks that that first rider is Jesus. Okay? A Christian man. You can think that, and you and I can disagree... Let's talk about it. Just buy me lunch. Deal? Okay? So you are more than welcome to do that. You are, that is an, an option. Um, I would just say, you're wrong, but we can talk <laughs> about those things. So, if this is not that, then who is it? Well, there is this great temptation in all of us to believe that things that we can see things that we can touch and things that seem to have power are going to save us. And we believe those over believing the living God. Throughout Scripture, one of the biggest ones of these, and the one that I think he's referring to, is our want to trust in the nation to protect us. To trust in the human government to be our savior and to be the nation, and we start to treat that as our Lord. And so, the white horse that looks like Jesus, but is not Jesus, and what follows that white horse? Warfare, economic imbalance, and death. Now, this is not just new to us. 
This has been the temptation of God's people forever. Open with me to 1 Samuel. It's in the beginning of your Bible, chapter 8. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and there we are. Up until this moment, Israel had been ruled by judges and by prophets. So God brought them out of Egypt with Moses, who's a great prophet, and then God hands them off to Joshua, who's a great judge and a leader. Then God uses the book of Judges to raise up judges to save his people. Samuel is the last judge in that line. And God used these judges to do specific things. They were not kings. They were not rulers. They were representatives of God. Prophets and judges, okay? The representatives of God there to do a specific thing, not to create a nation. Israel, the people of God, they get sick of this. And you know what they want? They want a king. And they look to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, and they say, Samuel, give us a king. Why? And this is, I mean, it's classic middle school answer. We want to be like everybody else. Right? We want to have a king like they have a king. And we want to have a king like, like they have a king. And this breaks Samuel's heart. So, starting with verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel. When they said, give us a king to govern us, Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I think that's one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Give them what they want, Samuel. Give them a king. Make them like everybody else. Make them a nation. Give them somebody riding on a white horse that they can look to, right? To protect us, to save us, to guide us. Because they're not looking to me. But warn them what that king will do. What's that king going to do? So let's read on. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to work. He'll take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And you know what the people said? Yeah, we want that. And you know what we say regularly? Yeah, they'll protect us. That, this, this country, this, this group, they'll, they'll be the ones who will save us, Right? 
Let's put our hope and trust in them. And what does Samuel say? After you hope and trust in the guy on the white horse, you know what's going to follow? Warfare. He'll put his best guys in front, and he'll give your best men, and he'll put them on the front lines, and they're going to die. And he'll take your best women, and he's going to use them as cooks and bakers to what? Profit himself. And then he's going to take one-tenth of everything you have. Why? To profit himself and to protect you. But yeah, you trust in him. First comes the white horse, which looks like Jesus, and you have this temptation to trust it, followed by warfare, followed by economic imbalance, and followed by death. And God's people always, to this very day, say, save us, nation state. That's your job. And you wonder, you wonder how many times if we're as honest as the people were to first to Samuel. We just want to be like everyone else. We just want to have someone we can see, someone we can listen to, and just like everyone else. We don't want you to be our king. We want that guy. And it breaks the heart of God. Well, this is a tough verse, right? The tough verse. And what happens after that? So then the fifth seal gets broken, and all of those people who are trampled on by this are crying out for justice. God, save us, the martyrs. Vindicate us. Judge for us. Go out and do that. Finally, please, God. Their blood is crying out. You know what God says? A little while longer. There's more who need to come to faith. Wait. And and we hear in the voice of the martyrs the voice that we should have. Because I don't know about you, but I'm really good at judging things. Like, I think sometimes I'm better than God, right? Nope, that is definitely evil. And that's good. But you know what the great part about Revelation? You don't have to judge anymore. You know why? Because God's going to do it. You know what you do? You love and forgive. God will call evil evil, and he'll judge it, and he'll do better than you will do. So let's let him judge, and you do the forgiving. And you do the loving and the peace and the justice, those things. He'll handle the judgment. So, the sit seal then, world ends. All over. And now, if you flip back to Revelation. I mean, this is just like cool stuff, right? This is like mega, mega cool. You flip back. Now we slow down and we pause on the 144,000. Now, numbers aren't just numbers, remember. Numbers always mean something. 144, that's a little pretty number, isn't it? 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. For all my high school graduates, that's 144,000, right? 144,000, 12 times 12, two 12s. Old Testament people, New Testament people, three tens, complete. God's number. So God's complete, the three tens, people of God. So the 144,000, you know who they are? Us. There's not just 144,000. It's not a literal number. It's a figurative number saying all the people of God. And you know what God wants to do with them? This is so very cool that we had a baptism today. But you know what God wants to do with them? Seal them on the foreheads. Do you remember what just happened here? Remember what we watched happen to Tiffany, Delilah, and Jade Ryan? 
You are sealed in the cross of Christ in the love of God now and forever. And that oil goes into their skin. And I was marked on July 4th, 1982. There's fireworks every year for my baptismal birthday. I was marked every year and sealed and saying, Scott Hawkins, you are a child of God. I'm never going to forget you. And I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how he slows down. He clips through the seals, right? First seal, second seal, third seal, fourth seal, fifth seal. And then he slows down because he wants you to focus here instead of on the seals. If you go out and you talk to somebody about Revelation, they're going to say, oh, it's a scary book. There's a, there's a writer called death. But this is something I did this week. You know, for all six seals, you know how many words he does? 508 for six seals. So you break that down, that's like 78 words a seal or something. I mean, it's not. He does all of that in 508 words. And then on the interlude, 492 words just on the interlude. He slows down because you know what he wants you to hear? Amidst everything that's happening, amidst your temptation to follow the white horse, amidst the warfare, the economic imbalance, all of those things that are going on, death, I know my people. I've marked them with the cross of Christ. 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. Do you hear him slowing down so that you don't miss it? And what this is, the marked people of God, those of us who are on earth, this is a great word, are the church militant. Instead of saying, nation state, I follow you, we say, God, I follow you and serve you. That's why we fill out kingdom cards, guys. We fill them out saying, we're advancing the kingdom because we're the church militant. We're the church here advancing God's kingdom. And God has marked us and he knows us. So amidst everything, he knows you. And then we get to this, the multitude, everybody's singing. And we're in heaven hearing the song again. And this is called the church triumphant. The church triumphant is those who have gone through life, died in faith, and now get to sing. Worship to God. And you know who's worshiping? The church militant and the church triumphant. So in the midst of the things that we have this temptation to focus on, in the midst of the, the struggles and the warfare and the death and the economic imbalance and the craziness and, and the confusion that the nation state brings, God says, I know you. I love you and I've sealed you. Now go and be my church. Go and do my things. Did you hear the gospel? Feed the poor. Clothe the naked. Welcome the stranger. This is what the book of Revelation is about. There's this temptation that we have to be drawn back into the seals and to focus on the chaos when God wants you to focus on the fact that he knows you by name just as he now knows Tiffany Delilah, Jane Ryan. Wow. Never going to forget them. And they have the holy privilege of serving him and going and taking it to the world. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. You are God who has taught us what it is to worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us to remember how good you are and what you do for us. So, Lord, bless us and be with us.
Help us to remember that you know the numbers of hairs on our head. You know the days of our lives. And you are watching over us. Lord, we are tempted. We are tempted to worship something other than you. Forgive us. Forgive us for the ways that we worship things that do not, do not cause awe in us. So, Lord, teach us what it is to worship you in spirit and in truth. To call you Lord and Savior over every part of our life. Lord, release us from the judgment seat and help us to get to live in peace and love with one another, knowing that you will do perfect judgment. That's your holy name we pray. Amen.